Amen. All right, we're in Colossians. We're, we're going to look at verse uh, chapter 1, verse 28 and 29 today. I'm aware that that's only two verses. Deal with it, okay? That's what we're going to do today. And But we are going to finish chapter 1 today, so we got one-fourth of the way through. Hallelujah. By way of introduction, if you remember last week, we said that the first chunk of Scripture that we studied was about Christ. And the pronoun was, He is the image of the invisible God. In Him, all and through Him and for Him, all things were created. And then the next paragraph talked about the Colossians. You were alienated from God, hostile in your thinking. But God, in, the, in Christ's body, He redeems you and declares you holy and blameless and above reproach. So the first paragraph about Christ, the second paragraph about the Colossians, and the next couple paragraphs are about Paul and his ministry. And he's kind of expounding his own philosophy on what the church is and what the church does and what ministers do. And so as we step back into this um, this thought process where, where we're really talking about Paul and his ministry, I want to open today by just, just sketching a brief overview of who Paul is. Not We're not going to sketch his missionary journeys or his entire life story, but I want to sketch primarily um, his person, his makeup, his upbringing, his thought life. And so just quickly, let me just remind you a bit about Paul. First, Paul was born Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a cosmopolitan city with a lot of trade, and Tarsus had a rich Greek culture. We're studying Paul was born in the Roman Empire, but on the heels of the Hellenistic movement, which when Greece began to spread around the world, and Rome, in Rome's movement, there's still Greek philosophy, Greek ideas, Greek gods being worshipped, and so Paul grew up in Tarsus, a city that had quite a bit of um, influence from all of this cosmopolitan kind of trade, people flowing in and out. In Tarsus, Paul would have heard on a daily basis people speaking Greek. He would have heard people speaking um, Hebrew and Latin and Aramaic, um, but, but and Latin as well. There would have been Latin. So in Tarsus, we have things engraved where there will be a statement written in Greek, and then the statement's written in Aramaic and Latin, um, sometimes in Hebrew. And so tar Tarsus had 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 multiple languages, multiple cultures, all kind of thrown together. In Tarsus, Paul would have been um, exposed to a lot of Greek ideas and Greek concepts. So we see Paul throughout the scriptures. I'm going to give you like um, just kind of a, a, a throw-by of a few separate scriptures that talk about Paul in his life. We see Paul engaging, for instance, with Greek poetry and Greek art. And so Paul is um, versed in the kind of artistic world of Greek culture in, in Athens in Acts 17 through 24. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him, notice the quotation here, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we indeed are his offspring. So here, Paul quotes a Sicilian poet, um, where he says, in him we live and move and have our being. And there are other instances and cases where Paul will quote poetry as he's presenting the gospel. Remember when he's writing to Titus, in Titus chapter 1, Paul sent Titus um, to the Cretes, 
um, to establish elders and encourage the churches there. And Paul says this to Titus in chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. One of the Christians, a prophet of their own, said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. But he is quoting a poet there, a Christian poet, when he says, he, they say the Christians are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says he's right. But again, he's showing himself versed with, with poetry. So likely, uh, it's pretty well established that in Paul's upbringing in Tarsus, he was uh, exposed to Greek art, to Roman art. But we also find that Paul's going to continually allude to Greek philosophers. So Paul also has uh, quite a handle on the great philosophers Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. Um, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Here, when he says bad company corrupts good morals, he's quoting a Greek comic play, but a line that many think came from Euripides or, or Socrates. And so he's quoting kind of ancient Greek philosophy there. And, and so we, we see him engaging brilliantly with lines of logic, argumentation, and we're very sure that Paul um, is very aware of Greek philosophy. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, he wrote a biography on the Apostle Paul, um, concludes that Paul, as a thinker, as an intellect, Paul goes toe-to-toe, this, I'm quoting him here, this is a historian, Paul, as a, a thinker, as an intellect, goes toe-to-toe with Aristotle and Plato and has had as great of an impact as those Greek philosophers. So historically, as a thinker, Paul is as influential as these Greek philosophers and engages at times with their concepts. Then, remember that Paul grew up in Tarsus, but where was he trained? He was trained in Jerusalem. And so there was a period in his life where he transitioned from Tarsus to Jerusalem. And we know from Paul's life there are occasions where he speaks to the Jews and he will just switch right to Hebrew. He'll begin to speak to them in Hebrew. He quotes large portions of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And so he has great portions of the Old Testament memorized. He's trained under Gamaliel, who is still to this day honored as a great rabbi in the rabbinic tradition. He was the elite rabbi of the day. Um, He was the head of the Sanhedrin. And so Paul, not only was he trained in Jerusalem, but he was trained by the greatest rabbi of the day, and he was in line to take that position to continue the rabbinic tradition. So think of Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says of himself, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. So in other words, Paul says, as I was being trained in Judaism, I was advancing beyond all of my peers, and it was very clear that I had a a distinct zeal and passion to carry on the traditions of the fathers. And and then, remember, he kind of became the chief persecutor of the, the, this new Jewish sect called Christians who claimed Jesus was the Messiah. Look at Acts chapter 22, verse 3 through 5. Paul says, um, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia. So um, I'm a Jew, but I was born in Tarsus, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way the Christians to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So now this is Paul defending himself before his Roman imprisonment, and he says, I was a Jew trained under Gamaliel, 
from Tarsus, but you can ask the high priest and the council of elders. I used to persecute the way. And so Paul is not this um, normal Jewish boy. He's saying here as he defends himself, the high priest knows who I am. The, the Sanhedrin, the elders, they know me. I was advancing. I was leading. They were giving me authority. I am not some commoner. I, I, I excelled in the heights of Judaism. And now, as Paul lives in the Roman Empire, we also find that Paul is very well versed with Roman politics and Roman government. Before Felix, as he defends himself before Felix, he says, um, And when the governor had nodded to speak to him, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He, so, so remember, Paul represents himself in court because he's versed in not only government, but argumentation and logic. And he's, he presents himself before Felix. He says, Felix, I know you. I know the justice which you um, assume to live by. In Acts 26, verse 2 through 3, he says, I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you, Agrippa, are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. So what is he saying here? Agrippa, I know who you are. I know that you're, I know that you're versed in the customs of the Jews. So Paul is not the kind of man who only preaches the gospel with his head in the sand. He has no concept or idea of what's happening in the world. He's saying, I know you, Agrippa. I know what you believe. I know what you've studied. And then he says, um, in the trial, you remember it gets heated, and he says to Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe the prophets. Right before that outburst, Festus, the other Roman official, says to Paul in Acts 26, 24, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. So, Paul knows Agrippa, he says, I know what you believe. Festus knows Paul. He knows enough about Paul to know that Paul has great learning. What he's saying to Paul is, you've lived so long in books that you have no, you're, you're going crazy. So then Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 through 16, he says this in his epistle, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So Peter says, the fisherman says, Paul's really smart. <laughs> and sometimes it's hard to understand what he's saying. But he's inspired in his writings or scripture. And so what I, what I just tried to show you quickly is that, that Paul in Tarsus is a man who knows art. He's a man who knows philosophy, poetry. He's a man who is very familiar with Greek argumentation and lines of logic. He's a man who is also very versed in Jewish tradition, excelling beyond everyone else. He has great passages of Scripture memorized. He knows the traditions of the fathers. He is also a Roman citizen and very keenly aware of what's happening in the Roman political landscape. His contemporaries call him brilliant, and the historians say he stands next to Aristotle and Plato. Paul is a great intellect, a fascinating man, 
Paul can hold conversation with anyone Paul wishes to hold conversation with. Many would like to have dinner with Paul and prick his mind to talk about philosophy or prick his mind to talk about art. Many would like to have dinner with Paul and talk about government and politics. But Paul says, there's only one thing I want to talk about. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. Paul has a highly exalted intellectual gift, extremely well-versed in many fields. He's a genius on every front. Yet he says, I don't want to talk to you about philosophy. Yes, I've read Plato. Yes, I understand Aristotle. But I don't want to talk to you about I don't want to talk to you about poetry. I don't want to talk to you about politics. I, I know what's going on in the political landscape. That's not what I came to talk to you about. There is one subject that has totally fascinated my entire being. It's Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus crucified. I am focused in my presentation, in my argumentation, in my presentations. There's one theme, Jesus As, as we turn to the Colossians again today, Paul will say, Him we proclaim. And he is drawing a framework. He's, he's putting a box around the subject which is appropriate for the Christian minister. He is saying, everything we say, it must be driven by Christ. It must be for Christ, unto the glory of Christ. We cannot be distracted. Him I proclaim. He knows poetry, but he's not the kind of preacher that comes with Two poems and three points. He knows philosophy. He'll use it at times to intrigue his listeners, but he never wastes a breath when he has the ear of a crowd spouting off the latest philosophical constructs. Paul is not a politician, but he knows politics, but he does not spend his time debating the political landscape. He is a historian, but there is one, only one, historical event that he considers worthy of his time, mainly the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. He is a historian, but there's only one historical event that he really wants to talk about. Let's read, as Paul again is speaking to a distracted church, but talking about his own ministry, let's read and analyze what he says in these two verses, Colossians 1, 28 through 29. 128, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, if you're just jumping in with us or you just slid in here on vacation, we know about you, we know how that happens. Let me just spend two minutes building the overarching narrative of the epistle to the Colossians so that we have a better grip on what's happening in this particular text. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, which he did not plant, but his disciple Epaphras planted. Paul is currently in prison in Rome as he writes this letter, and he's writing to the Colossian church because Epaphras has come to Paul, who's in prison at Rome, and said, this church is beginning to go astray. They're beginning to embrace false teaching. He specifically says, Paul addresses these themes in the epistle, that there are many in the church at Colossae who are going on and on about angelic visions. They're going on and on about secret wisdom. They're going on and on about um, 
what you would call asceticism or fasting or denying your body pleasure because they're saying that if you would fast more, then you could somehow excel to a new spiritual height, achieve secret knowledge. And so there's this twisting of the entire Christian presentation, which is no longer love Jesus, serve Jesus, live unto the glory of Jesus. It is now being presented to the Colossian church. If you will subscribe to our ideas about what spirituality is, then you could come to a higher plane of spiritual living. There are some who have secret knowledge, high spiritual encounters, and then there are some commoners. And so Paul writes to the Colossian church and says, you are moronic. The first thing he did, Colossians 1.15, is he began to talk about the deity of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him. For him, he is the head of all things. The first thing he says to the church at Colossia is kind of doxological. You need to make sure that the deity of Christ is at the center of everything you do. And then he tells the church at Colossians, and you were alienated from God, hostile in your thinking, yet God in the body of Christ redeemed you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. So you were were sinners doomed to death, and rather than executing you, God allows the death of his son to become substitution on your behalf, and now you are forgiven if you persevere. And then Paul says, look at me, I've persevered. Sitting in prison, I rejoice in my suffering. And, and it's there that he began to turn and talk about himself. And last week, as we talked about the Apostle Paul, we said that in Paul's theology, in Paul's um, doctrine, is this concept of suffering on purpose, persevering through hardship for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says, even though I'm in prison, even though I've been beaten, hungry, lashed, I persevere in faith because God uses every ounce of my suffering. And there is where we turn today. So he says, I suffer gladly. Then he says, it's him we proclaim. Him. We return to the first pronoun. Remember, he is the image of the invisible God. Him I proclaim. Paul says, Christ we preach. Again, not to beat a dead horse, but Paul, I believe, at this moment in time in history, is one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting person on the entire planet He could have had fascinating conversations about all the philosophical philosophy you want to talk about. Politics and government. Paul is fascinating, but he says one thing, one person, one message, Christ. It's Christ I proclaim. This is the only topic of conversation which can bring redemption. This is the most powerful message that the history of the world has ever known. This message, him, as he is proclaimed, dead things begin to beat. Now, the false teachers invading the church at Colossae, again, they're talking about Jewish lineage. We find that in the text. That some, and we find that today. People want to go on and on about Jewish lineage. They, they want to talk about the calendars and the festivals. They want to talk about angelic hierarchies. What kind of angelic beings are higher than others and how they operate in certain ways. They want to go on and on about mysteries unknown. Paul says you have teachers in your midst who want to go on and about, about, about these spiritual concepts and ideas. And Paul says, I only talk about Jesus. I'm not going to get wrapped up in these kind of uh, Jewish genealogies. I'm not going to get wrapped up in these kind of calendars and festivals. Let's talk about Christ. Paul says, Him I proclaim. And there, we need to remember that there are many things that we could learn. 
many things that we could give our attention to. But there is only one message that is worthy of laying your entire life down for. Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus crucified. Is it Christ that we really want to talk about when we gather around the dinner table, or is it the local political landscape? Now again, there's nothing wrong with talking about politics as long as we talk about politics through the lens of Christ. Is it Christ we want to talk about when we sit down at the table? Is he? Is it his song that's on our lips first thing in the morning? Is he the heartbeat of our community, our church, our proclamation? Churches have tendencies, y'all. Tendencies. Churches tend to rally around pet doctrines. They pick a doctrine, they rally around it, and every person that does not ascribe to their pet doctrine is going straight to the fires of hell. Um, churches, and, and we saw this in the charismatic movement. For, for a long time, the charismatic movement picked the pet doctrine, the, the filling of the Spirit, and it's all we talked about, it's all we preached on, all of the books were about the filling of the Spirit. And the filling of the Spirit is a, is a beautiful message that needed to be redeemed and recovered and represented. All of that's true. But, it, but at some point, those concepts became... Um, alienated or, or, or broken away from the gospel message and the blood of Jesus and the redemption that he bought for us. And, and we, we see um, we could go after pet, pet doctrines, theological rabbit trails. We can go after politics. Churches do that where they go after politics and the, the primary message is what political candidate you should be voting for. Churches, um, particularly left-leaning churches, go after um, what we would have called before social justice themes. I think that term holds a new light in today. But but we'll go after just feeding the poor. Like the church exists to feed the poor. The church exists to bring water to the homeless. And it's like, yeah, that's a part of that's a part of Christianity. But abstract from the cross of Christ, that's nothing but good works. Um, and 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 you could you could bring that into large conversations today about the role of the church. And what I'm trying to say is is not. Y'all pay attention to me. I'm not saying that we can't talk about anything but, but evangelism. When Paul says, it's Christ I proclaim, he's not saying that all I do is preach the gospel for the sake of evangelism. Because the entire context of the passage that we're reading today is about presenting all mature in Christ. So the context of the passage is really about sanctification. So Paul is not saying, we as evangelicals do this, all I'm ever going to do is preach the gospel. And if you're not preaching the gospel, you're not preaching. He's not saying that, but he is, this is what Paul will do. When he talks about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about what it means to have a Christ-centered marriage. So when he talks about marriage, he says to the husbands, you need to love your wives the way that Jesus loves the church. Wives, submit to your husbands the way that the church submits to Jesus. When he talks about finances, he's going to talk about it in light of Christ. When he talks about forgiveness, it's in light of Christ. So another danger that we see in the church today, particularly what we would call the like seeker-friendly church, is that the church has become a platform for, for self-help tools. And so we do entire things on marriage. Marriage should be talked about in the church in light of Christ. We do entire conferences on finances. That's good as long as the center of the conference is how do we honor Christ with our finances and the principles of Christ's life, his death and resurrection, his sacrificial love must be the driving themes of the way in which we handle our finances. Does this make sense? 
our, our messages, our proclamation must be Christ-centered. Paul says, it's Him we proclaim, focused on Jesus. Then he says this, Him we proclaim to everyone, teaching everyone, that we may present everyone. That is what you call, friends, repetition. Paul is using the word, the Greek word here is pas, and so it's actually the same word for that's going to be translated as all. And so when he says he, he preaches to all people, he teaches all people to present all people in all maturity. He's, he's beating this one Greek word, pas, over and over. It's not an especially important word. It just means all, everyone. But he is using the word to drive home a theme. I'm leaning on a, a New Testament scholar, Douglas Moo, here. Um, who, who points to the fact that the Colossians have embraced spiritual elitism. Okay, so they've embraced the idea that there are some who are spiritual and some who aren't spiritual. Some who have achieved new heights of spirituality and some commoner, poor, dumb people. And Paul says to the Colossians, uh, the gospel is to everyone that I may present everyone fully mature to Christ. And so he's, he's using the word everyone to reemphasize that the church has an audience and it's not the spiritual elite so so back up just two lines recognize what jesus is doing here he's saying or, or what paul is doing here he's saying one him we proclaim colossians you proclaim your pet doctrines you proclaim jewish lineage you proclaim your asceticism we proclaim christ so first, Colossians, you lost your message. You became distracted and you lost your message. Second, Colossians, by embracing these false teachings and elitism, elitism, you lost your audience. You decided that there were only some people worthy of your attention. But Paul regrounds them by saying, my goal is to preach to everyone. There are no elite there are no worthy and unworthy. The gospel is to the rich and the poor alike. James chapter 1. The gospel is to red, yellow, black, and white. The gospel is to the, group, the Greek and the Jew. The gospel has always been to all people, disability or no disability. Status class or no status class. Thriving politicians and slaves. It's to all people. If I could pop us on the butt here just for a second, um, which I'm allowed to do, we have resisted, many of us and, and me alike, we have resisted um, what is called critical race theory that our culture slapped us with in the last couple years. The idea that, 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 that all of the... Um, the majority race uh, are oppressors and all of the uh, minority races are the oppressed, we've said, look, that's, that's, that's not a biblical construct. All people are capable of sin, number one, and, 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 and we are maturing to be like Christ, and so we don't agree with the idea that everyone's a racist. We believe that some people have died and been born again in Christ and are choosing to live selflessly, and so we have, in a way, resisted what some churches have gone after in critical race theory, and we've said, this is not biblical. Now, while saying critical race theory is not biblical, we need to make sure that we don't at the same time push away from the biblical concept, which is called the Imago Dei. 
And so on one hand, as we, I'm getting into the weeds here, but here we go. On one hand, as we are resisting the concepts which say that we're all broken up by race and that we all should interact with each other based on our ancestors and the way that they interacted with each other. We're saying that in Christ, we are one new race, one new man. We love each other fully, red, yellow, black, and white. You're, I'm, I'm saying whether you're rich poor, you're struggling, you're tired, you are a brother and sister in Christ, you should be elevated and honored. The church doesn't play race games. But what's happening at times, what I'm sensing, is that as the church is pushing away from critical race theory, we're also pushing away from proclaiming that the audience of the gospel has always been to all people because we don't want to look woke. You you hear what I'm saying? And so, um, I, I don't... I don't want to go after CRT and wokeism, but in the same sense, before CRT and wokeism ever smacked us in the face, we were preaching something called the Imago Dei, that every man, woman, boy, and girl, Down syndrome, autistic, poor, rich, Hispanic, Asian, African, they are all created in God's image and the gospel is to them, and it's our commission to serve them, love them, give them the gospel, lay our lives down, even willing to die to see them know Jesus. Our commission has always been to all people. And, and so I, I, I am saying, yes, I don't like critical theory as a whole. I don't like critical theory at all, but I particularly don't like critical race theory. But in our pushing away from it, we cannot allow ourselves to push away from the fact that this gospel is to all people. This gospel is to the black man. This gospel is to the Asian man. This gospel is to the poor. And and we need to make sure that we don't just push away, but as we push away, we declare Mago Dei. All people. That's what Paul is saying here. You, Colossians, you only minister to the elite, to the spiritual high ones, the ones who feel like they've exalted above everyone else. But me, I preach to everyone. I serve everyone that I may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So what Paul just said was, Colossians, you lost your message. You started talking about your little pet doctrines and ideas and you lost the gospel. And you lost your audience because you thought the gospel was only for people like you who agreed with you, who bought into your new theories and ideas. And then Paul says that, so I preach Jesus and Jesus alone to all people in order that I may present all people mature. Paul's mission, imagine this, is to disciple the nations. It's almost as if he's read the Great Commission. He's saying, you feel spiritual in this moment, but you've actually abandoned the very foundation of the gospel. You've lost your message and your audience. He says, you feel like the elite ones, but you're actually childish. Paul is saying, it's time to grow up. I'm leaning on Moo here again, but the word translated as mature in our text today, sometimes it can be translated as perfect. It's my, Paul says, I want to present everyone perfect in Christ. Now, what scholars are saying pretty commonly is that mature or perfect, neither one of those words really match the Greek word here. Sometimes in language, you, you don't always find a, an apple for apple in words. Does that make sense? And so scholars say that the word mature is, is not quite strong enough. 
and it's kind of generic, and the word perfect is too strong. Paul's not saying that I'm trying to present you impeccable in, in holiness. That the word that he's using here, that we're translating as mature, it actually means fully devoted. It means to live holy because you are so hot with devotion to God. Um, this is Mu, I'm quoting Mu. It's, it's the quality of being so wholehearted in one's devotion to the Lord that one can be said to be blameless. It, so what Paul is saying is, my, what I am trying to do is to present everyone fully devoted to the mission and the purpose and the person of Jesus. I'm trying to advance them in their devotion. He wants all people to hear Christ, all people to hear the message of Christ, and to grow increasingly fiery in love with the person of Jesus by swearing allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. Saying, I belong to no one else. It's Him and Him alone. I will serve Him, love Him, lay my life down for Him. All that I am for Christ and Christ alone. Paul says that is the height of Christian maturity. Full devotion. Laid down love. And he says... Finally, we'll get ready to close. I'm sweating now. I was cold when I came up. Now I'm sweating. And that's Brad's fault too. Paul says, I toil and I struggle to this aim to present all mature with his power that he works within me. My life work, what I toil for, what I struggle for is to preach Christ to all people to present them all fully, wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. This is my life work, and I do it by the power of the Spirit. Paul is saying, I have stayed on mission, and as I stay on mission, the Spirit works His own power within me. He's saying, church, if you would focus, what's our message? Christ and Christ crucified. Who's our audience? All people. What's our aim? Wholehearted devotion. He says, if you will focus, if you will not live distracted, if you will struggle and toil to present everyone mature in Christ, then God will breathe on the church. He's saying, I work, I struggle, and I toil, but as I pour myself out, the very power of Christ in me becomes my strength. Spirit-filled churches are focused churches. Spirit-filled churches are churches on a mission who pour themselves out with this message to all people, with this hope, devotion. And as they are pouring themselves out, the Spirit just fuels the flame. We want God's breath. We want the power of the Spirit to, to save, to heal, and deliver. We don't want to come to church and hear someone speak and raise our hands. We want to come to church and meet with God. Paul is saying here, stay focused. Keep your message. Keep your audience. Keep your aim. And as you keep your message, audience, and aim, the Spirit will continually fill you. He will become your strength. What's the, what's the best thing that we have to offer the world? It's the best thing that we can do for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Preach 
Jesus faithfully for the entirety of our lives to all people and do everything we can to disciple one another, to be more devoted to Christ. That's what we have to offer. Paul is saying, again, hear me say, he's saying, I understand Aristotle. I can quote you, Socrates. But everything that Socrates has to say is dead. The only thing that brings life change and redemption is the gospel of Christ Jesus. Now, as we're talking about future days and what we're after as a church and, 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 and growth and pursuing the Spirit, I want to just lay out really quickly our kind of vision, mission statement things. You know that that's a thing. You've got to do those things. So quickly, I want, to just, I want to just try to draw some frame around what we're trying to do. So Sam, would you give me some of those slides? Our mission, we exist to see His glory permeate our region. What do we mean by that? His, his glory, His presence and power fill this region. We want to see this region praise God and then the glory of God be enthroned upon the praises of these people. Our vision. Our vision is to see the Spirit's power and presence bring gospel transformation to every generation in our, in our midst. Not one people group, all people in our midst. Our values. Will you give us that? We're after full surrender. What kind of surrender? Full surrender. Total devotion to Christ as we live lives devoted to humility and honor. We are after full surrender as we live our lives fully devoted. This is the kind of church we're trying to be. With one message, Christ. With one audience, mainly everyone. With one purpose, hotter devotion. an, An inflamed passion and zeal for Jesus. Romans 12, 2. That we may live our lives as living sacrifices to Jesus. Always on the altar. If you'd stand to your feet, we'll get ready to close. just want to pray for us for a moment. If you would, if you, if you are willing, if you just open your hands. Father, we pray that you would bring us to a place of focus. Lord, we pray that for the entirety of our lives, the rest of our lives that we have to spend, that we have one primary message. Christ Jesus, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ glorified. Lord, we ask that you would keep us on mission. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we would carry the heart of Paul, the heart of the Great Commission, to go to all nations with this gospel. That we would reject any elitism. We would honor all people, serve all people, be willing to lay our lives down for all people. Father, keep us on message. Lord, may we never forget our audience. And Lord, our aim is is higher devotion a greater exaltation of Jesus, that your name would be exalted in this earth at a greater fervency. Lord, may our lives bring your name 
praise. And Lord, as we pour ourselves out, Holy Spirit, you are the greatest gift, strength in our lives. Fill us afresh. Fill us afresh. So the altars are open now. If you just feel like, man, I, I want a I fresh filling of the Spirit, the altars are open. I want you to come. If you want to just say, God, I want to live on mission. I want your Spirit to fill me. Go ahead and come. Come on, some of you have felt tired. Say, Spirit, come fill me. Spirit, fill me. Lord, if I've been distracted, bring me to focus. Focus.